you are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Corinthians 13. Let's just get right into that um, and talk about some things here. Preparing for this sermon was really kind of interesting because I just couldn't land on anything really hard. There's so much, you know. I don't like getting up in front of people talking, but if there's something in the Bible to talk about, I can't shut up. And that's what always kind of nerves me out, because then I look at the clock, and then sometimes I can't see the clock, and then we're all sitting here for hours, and I don't want that to happen. Uh, So I actually have like two sets of notes up here, um, which probably isn't going to be helpful. And it's because I've been going back and forth on the sermon, and then and then the video, and then Brian, and then so it's probably I'm probably not going to use any of them. <laughs> so First Corinthians 13. This is the sermon I or the the passage that I said I would never preach at anybody's wedding. Okay, no, it's just it's just too cliche to do that at weddings. And besides that, it's not really written for weddings. How many of you have really kind of been getting something out of going through all of First Corinthians? Week after week after week. Has it, has it made the book make sense for you? Yeah, I'm seeing things in this context that I've never seen before. And because we're flying through them, uh, a chapter per Sunday, we're not covering everything. Uh, there's still a lot of meat on the bone, so to speak. And that's what we hope, is that you will go home and keep chewing on that bone and keep digging in more. And in First uh, Corinthians 13 just fits into this chapter. It's such a pivotal time that it's, it's pretty amazing. It's a chapter about love. We talk about love all the time, don't we? But in our culture, I don't think we understand love. I'm going to try this to see if it doesn't blow up on me. But um, think of the things that we say that we love. All right. Think of the things that we say that and I love that. All right. Got something in mind? Okay. Can I have a volunteer? Jonas. Okay, it's blowing up already. <laughs> Go ahead, man. I love pizza. You love what? Pizza. Pizza. All right. There. We, we say stuff like that. I love pizza. Okay. Um, something other than food. Okay, yeah. I love God. I love God. Oh, thank you for going there. Uh, all right, because that's the answer we all should have started with. You know? uh, I love God. All right. Saying, other than Jesus, um, what do we love? Allie. Puppies. Yeah. Okay. Not kittens, but puppies. No, kittens are cool until they grow up to be cats. Uh, okay. Other than other than animals, what's something? Sarcasm. Sarcasm. <laughs> All right. Okay. Other than something that Brian is constantly doing. Look at that, Matt. I love my wife. Oh, there we go. Uh, every husband now is going, dang it. Got my hand up Long drive home. <laughs> oh, that's nice. That, that's good. And I'm sure that that is reciprocated. Yeah, okay, she's not good. Uh, okay, other other than our spouse, uh, yes, sir? Music. Music, okay. I love music. I think a lot of us can say that, too. Um, but other than music, uh, Sean? Love my family. Love my family. Okay, very good. Okay, other than family members, yes? I love woodworking. Woodworking, okay. Other than uh, hobbies or projects that we do, what else do we love? Yes, Lord. Okay, Christmas. Yeah, I like Christmas too. That's a good one. Yeah, uh, Anthony. Pardon me. Emirates Airlines. <laughs> Is there Emirates Airlines? Airlines. Okay. Yeah. 
right, favorite airline. Never knew anybody had a favorite airline. <laughs> Not sure what to do with it. Yes, sir. Sunshine. Sunshine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Especially after this winter. It's nice to get some sunshine. Woo! I love the beach. Oh. The beach. The beach. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's cool. I do too. Let's go right now. Yeah, let's go to the beach. So, all right. So, here's the thing. We say we we say we love Jesus. Uh, we say we love our family. We say we love our spouses. We say we love our friends. Although I didn't hear anybody say that. Uh, uh, we, say we we love activities. Uh, we, we, there's concepts that we love. We love the idea of like freedom or something like that. Um, no, and, and we others say that we we even say that we love inanimate objects. Okay. Uh, we use that word love in our culture too much. And I'm beginning to think, you know, it's kind of like if you watch The Princess Bride, you keep saying that word, I don't think you know what it means. <laughs> and, and as we get into 1 Corinthians and we see the word love, we're, we're going to have a little bit of a problem with our understanding of that. Uh, when we read the word love in the Bible, whether old, either Old Testament or New Testament, we're actually seeing a very inadequate English translation for the word that shows up in either the Hebrew, uh, the Aramaic, or the Greek. And, and that's something we don't understand sometimes. That English uh, is kind of stupid as language. <laughs> and we don't have the right word. We just can't come up with a word in the English language that, that we can replace what's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And uh, so we have to actually kind of come up with a rather long, drawn-out, it takes a paragraph, really, to translate the word love uh, from the original languages. Now, this is pretty interesting. The Greeks, whom, you know, Paul's writing in Greek to a mostly Greek culture at this time in Corinth, the Greeks loved rhetoric, all right? Uh, rhetoric is the ability to stand up and speak elegantly, uh, eloquently, persuasively, succinctly, to use all your right words very powerfully and motivationally so that your argument just totally blows away everybody else's argument. They love rhetoric, and different words had different meanings for them, depending on the object or the depth of the love they had or the affection that they might have had. Uh, for example, in Greek, you might see the word storbos, which is translated into love into English quite often. And what that is, is that's just natural affection. Okay, Even animals have storbos. Uh, a, a, a mother deer, a doe, for her fawn. Okay, um, that's just the affection that naturally comes out of creatures. Then there's philios, which is platonic love between friends, uh, and and we have that because we appreciate the qualities of another person. Okay, and then there's eros, which is um, physical expression of affection, of affection between two individuals. I have to keep kind of PG-rated there. Um, it, the New Testament never uses that word, by the way, eros. All right? Now, this is interesting. The Greeks never used any of their words for love towards an inanimate object. You never see a Greek going, oh, I just love this toga. Doesn't that make it creepier when you do this? <laughs> I love the toga. This toga is just wonderful. No, they wouldn't say stuff like that. They didn't have a word for, for that because they didn't have a concept for that. Their word for love, whatever word they used, whether it was storgos, philios, or eros, was always relational towards other people. Other people. Okay? So, 
when we read the New Testament and we find this word love in regards to God's love, we usually see the Greek word agape. I was waiting for it. Greek Greek people here. Agape. Isn't that a funny word? Agape. Agape. That's how I first read it. When I fell in love with my wife, I just stood there, agape. (laughs) No, it's wrong. It's, It's agape. Now, we usually translate agape into um, unconditional love, but that's not even very, very, well, it's not big enough for it. Um, we might say that it's self-sacrificing affection independent of conditions. Okay, agape, self-sacrificing affection independent of conditions. But now this is interesting. The Greek culture had no concept of self-sacrificial love. Even, even their own word agape was kind of lost to them because they didn't understand that. The closest it ever came was when the Spartans stood in Thermopylae uh, and, and they defied the Persian army because they were not going to let the Persian army get to the things that they cared about. That's, that's the closest thing to a self-sacrificing love that was ever demonstrated. It was the Spartans, not the Greeks, that did that. So Paul comes along and he uses a Greek word agape And what he's doing to it, because even that word isn't big enough, is he takes an Old Testament word, and he's kind of cramming that word into agape. Okay, Because we have a Jewish person writing to a Greek culture, helping them to understand, when I'm talking about God's love, this is what I mean. And that word is chesed. It's almost like you sneeze when you say chesed. No, he said kazundite, but... So said is virtually impossible for us to define into the English, but it's the word that God uses most in the Old Testament to describe himself. And Exodus 36, or I'm sorry, 34, verses 6 through 7 give us the best example of that. The Lord, the Lord, and listen to these words, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's chesed, all right? But notice that, that that God takes that word and he surrounds it with other words and then uses that word to encapsulate the words that it's surrounding. That's, that's how big this word is. Okay, let me go back again. Um, the, the God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, keeping the steadfast love for thousands. And whenever the Hebrews wrote the word thousands, um, they're talking thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands. The number so big that they couldn't even write it down. That's how big this chesed, this love of God is. Forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. You see, everything that was just wrapped up in that whole concept, this, this uh, slow to anger, gracious, merciful, um, abounding, uh, it's it's huge. It's for thousands. It, it includes forgiveness. That's what we mean when we start talking about the love of God. And it's no wonder that we don't have an English word for it. So here's basically said in a concept. It's when the person from whom I have no right to expect anything gives me everything. And that's exactly what God did for us. You know, we talk about when you don't go to the cursed people. Well, every single one of us as human beings were under a curse because of sin. And God took on human flesh, and Jesus Christ brought chesed to us. We had no right to expect anything from Him, but He gives us 
everything. That's the message of the cross. And that's why the cross changes things. That's why, like Brian said, when people share their story, things have changed. That is the power of God's love. A few sermons ago I talked about that. What is God's power? It's love. It's hesed. Because God is love, as we're told in 1 John chapter 4. So that's good, but before we get to 1, John 3, or 1, or 1 Corinthians 13, um, because Paul's reversing this, it's no longer, okay, you're a recipient of God's love, it's now, what are you going to do with what you have received? So how do we as Christians, and how were the Corinthians supposed to deal with this, this concept of chesed slash agape? In fact, that's what I'm going to do, instead of using the word love, I'm just going to say chesed agape. The Christian expression of this kind of love toward others should be understand is when someone who has no right to expect anything from me, anything good from me, gets nothing but good from me, no matter how much it's going to hurt me. I.e. having a kidney ripped out of your body so that someone else can experience life. Okay, that's, that's what Paul's talking about when he gets to 1 Corinthians. Okay, see why we don't use it in weddings? Okay, because it's something much, much bigger than that. So, to review, here's what's been going on in the Corinthian church. Most of the problems were coming from arrogance out of some of their more powerful members. That arrogance led to, um, well, let's just say conduct uh, that was not within the reach of the gospel. Or it was it, it was out of step with the gospel. Maybe I should say it that way. So imagine that. We have a church out of step with the gospel. Uh, there was a self-centered insistence to uphold their own personal rights okay, and freedoms at the expense of the weak and the marginalized. You know, this is very good for us in our culture because we are very Corinthian uh, as, as the United States of America. We're extremely Corinthian. Now what we have to do is say, well, are we a Corinthian church? <laughs> do we put our personal freedoms and rights over the needs of others. Um, they, they also had this propensity to seek their own, <laughs> their own social advancement rather than the gospel's advancement. Okay, there's all this one-upmanship going on in the Corinthian church. And it was all about going, well, I want to make myself look really good as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to put everything that I can, I'm going to, I'm going to put all my energies, all my studies, all my work into being the best Christian that I could be but I'm not going to do anything to advance the gospel. I'm not going to do anything to change the world that I live in. All I care about is changing me. Do that, you got a Corinthian church. Or a Corinthian attitude. So that's what Paul's addressing here. Now, I want you to picture Paul. When he gets this, we have the unknown letter, right? And along that, with that, he gets a report about what's going on in the Corinthian church. Paul reads that letter. He hears that report. I want you to picture Paul taking out a sword. And then he takes out a whetstone. In chapter 1, shink. Chapter 2, shink. In chapter 3, shink. And he's just drawing that whetstone in each of these chapters. And then we get to chapter 13, and Paul starts swinging. Okay? So, here's the text. By the way, there's three parts. I'm going to break this chapter down to three parts. It's in your notes. Brian did not want to write a word or type a word, so he left blanks in there. So I'm going to give it to you now. Here's the first part. Superior spirituality, quote-unquote, sounds, he didn't like that word, love 
is stupid. Okay? I don't care how spiritually superior you are, if there's no love, it's dumb. Second one, brand contrasting. We have Corinthians versus Christ. Don't have to write anything there. Third part, our investment should always be in the eternal. All right, there we go. We broke it down. Now let's read it. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I gave away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but not have love, I gain nothing. Okay, I'm just to stop there because this is the part where, where I think what Paul's saying to us is that, you know, spiritual superiority without love. It's just dumb. It's just stupid. It's just pointless. Okay, when he talks about speaking in tongues of men and angels, what he's talking about is is, is all forms of language. Okay? To, 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 to have the highest form of rhetoric that the Greeks loved, um, all forms of speech in such a way that, that you're, you're just, thousands of people would love to listen to you speak. Okay? They just invite you over to the house. You just come and talk to me. I just love it when you open your mouth kind of thing. You know, and we got churches that we put pastors on that pedestal. Oh, I just love my pastor because of how he's, how he's, I love his preaching kind of thing. Okay? But Paul's saying, that, that's nothing. That's absolutely nothing. You, you sound like a noisy cymbal, okay? Now, if you've ever been to the orchestra, I know my, my son-in-law, he's a percussionist, right? Did you ever do the cymbals? Yeah, okay. Was it fun? I imagine so. <laughs> it made this, this great noise. And if you've ever been in the orchestra and when the guy goes, because don't go like that. You don't clap in here. Okay. When you do that, it, it, it fits. There's a crescendo in the music and that, that just, how would you like to hear my son-in-law come up here and do a uh, cymbal solo? <laughs> yeah, they weren't made for that. Okay. They weren't made for solos. And that's basically what Paul's saying. If you're, if you think you're really something, but you do not exercise this, has said agape. Man, you're just in it. You're just a noise that we really wish would stop. And and there are times in this world where the world culture has spoken to us as the church and said, "We wish you would just stop." And there's a reason that they say that. He goes on to say, "If I had prophetic powers, uh, that's the ability to be able to stand up and speak for God as His representative. Man, if I was able to just do that and speak to this culture." Or if I can understand all mysteries uh, and have all knowledge, that's that's just having this, this incredible intellectual muscle and wisdom that I'm always right. And people just love to come and hear what I have to say so that I can they, they can have understanding. Or, or if I have all faith, and that's, that's to have this trust that says, man, I believe in the impossible. I believe it can be done. And these are all things that we value, we respect, and we even covet. But we don't have a synagogue. It's nothing. It's pointless. And then he goes on to say this, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, this is really interesting. This is a tough line to translate. In some versions it says, if I give my body up to the boast. You're like, what? The the Jews had a history. If you read the Apocrypha, there's the story of the Maccabees. And when the Greeks were defiling the temple, they were trying to uh, get the Jews to defile themselves as well. 
And some Jews said, I will throw myself on the burning pyre rather than bring shame to myself. And I guess they were hoping that the same thing that happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would happen. But they would willingly plunge themselves in, into an inferno rather than, rather than to defile themselves. And they start, that became a Jewish boast. You know, self-martyrdom. And Paul says, even if we're willing to do that, he says, I, I gain nothing. And that's, that's the Greek word, ophelio. And it means there's no advantage to that if there is no kased, agape. Okay, then he moves on to the next section. And, and what he's doing in here is he's providing this contrast of brands, uh, the, the Corinthian brand of love versus Christ's brand. And this is really fascinating if you've been paying attention to the other chapters of this book. He says love is patient and kind. And when he says patient, it means that when you're wronged, you're not quick to retaliate. Okay, that's meekness, by the way. Meekness is uh, the, the desire uh, to be wrong rather than to do wrong. Okay, So he says, love is patient and, and it's kind. And yet, here we had a bunch of people who did not care about the poor or the marginalized in their church. You know, not just in their city, but in their church they didn't even care about them. And they were quick to go to lawsuits with one another. That's not being patient and kind. That's, that's Corinthian brand there. Love does not envy or boast. Now, those are two poles of the same problem. And envying boasting leads to division. And what was happening in the Corinthian church? Division. Disunity. It is not arrogant or rude. But then we read about how they conducted themselves in worship with one another. It is not irritable or resentful. Again, look how quick they were to take others to court. Their own brothers and sisters in Christ. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And yet they were tolerant and they actually thought it was kind of cool that as a church they had, they had a man there that was living immorally with his stepmother. See where Paul starts swinging hard now? And then in verse 7, we get the Christ brand. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. It even goes on to say love never fails. Love never ends. And all of that kind of love is, if you want to know, well, what does the love of Christ look like? Okay, Or what is the love of God for me? Brian said it, God loves you immensely. And you might be going, well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like a God who took on human flesh and came down here and revealed God to us through his words and through his teachings and through his actions. Like Brian said, touching lepers. Nobody touches lepers. By going to the cursed people, by coming to us who were accursed people by sin, and allowing himself to be spiked to a wooden structure. And to experience the worst form of human punishment and execution that, 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 that we ever came up with. But even more than that, not, not just the, the physical suffering of being on the cross in our place. It, he took our sins upon him. He took our curse upon himself willingly, gladly though none of us deserved to have that done that is Hasid Agape acted out in reality love as we often read it in the Bible is the muscle of God's grace grace is just a concept until something goes into action 
And that's what happened at the cross. Cross, or Jesus bore all things, believed all things, He hoped all things, He endured all things. And He didn't give up. And He didn't quit. Even when He couldn't bear the weight of the cross Himself, He made sure it got done. Wow. Now this is where I get pretty messed up. Because I can find myself being more Corinthian than Christ. I can talk about all these things I do as a, as a believer, all the, the work I've done in ministry. And sometimes I've just been a clanging symbol. Standing up here before you and preaching about this chapter is stupid if I do not possess the love of Christ and more than possess it, give it. Give it. So that gets us to the last section here where he says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. There's a, there's a reason for that because chapter 13 lands smack dab. It's the Oreo creamy stuff right in the middle of the cookie of chapter 12 and chapter 14 where we're going next week. And the Corinthians had this big fixation of super spirituality and how they viewed spiritual gifts was part of that. And prophecies and tongues was very high on their list. He says that prophecies, they'll, they'll go away. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, it will pass away. For, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we, we see through a, a mirror dimly, or we see in a mirror dimly. But then, a time to come, it'll be face to face. Now I know in part, but then I, I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. What Paul was saying in there is, is that there are things that, that are good, there are things that exist right now in this time, in this age, but they will cease to exist at some point. Something's going to endure beyond that. Something's going to transcend beyond that. And what he's saying is it's, it's love. Okay, well, how do we make this practical for us? Okay, maybe, maybe our issue is not what we think about prophecy or, or tongues. Maybe our issue is something else. There are things in the church, every church, the universal church and the, the local church, there are things that will go away. Traditions will eventually fade away. And that causes some angst among some of the older ones who really like those traditions. Technologies are constantly changing. They'll go away. Hymns. Okay. Thankfully, we are mostly under 30. Mostly the over 30 crowd, when I just said hymns will go away, just did this inward and created a little vacuum. They're now getting their air back. Okay, I'm one of those guys. I love hymns. I love them. But they will eventually probably fade away. And it hurts to say that, but it's probably going to happen. Buildings. Buildings that we put so much money into uh, for churches, they'll, they'll go away. Personalities within the church aren't permanent. They go away as well. Programs that we develop to reach people or to, to keep people busy or whatever it might be, they, they're not going to last. Not, not, 
Well, maybe potlucks. <laughs> but they could. Because you see, all those things of this age, they're all fleeting. They're all a breath. They're, they're here and then they're gone. And even things in the church that we often value, even the things that we think what makes a great church a great church may not be permanent. What Paul's saying is, is that the only, the only permanent fixture within the church is grace that is expressed through sacrificial love. Chesed agape is something that you and I will never outgrow as Christians. It's the one thing that we, that we have here that we will take into eternity. And so we have to ask ourselves, just like the Corinthians have to ask them, themselves, what are we investing ourselves in? Are we investing ourselves in the things that aren't going to last? Is that where all our time, energy, and affections are going? Or are we going to invest in the love of God? Not for ourselves only, but for the cursed. For the people that no one is going to. Will we invest in that? Because when Paul swung that sword, he said, if you don't, you're wasting time. You're wasting time. This is all I know about God's love. He gave it to me. And I didn't deserve it. And His love is everlasting. I'll always have it. Though I never deserved it. His love was initiated towards me by Him. I never did anything where He said, Well, i got to love that guy now. And I've never done anything since then where He says, Well, I should love him more because He did that. He just loves because because he loves, and that's who he is. There, there's no intrinsic value in any of us that God says, well, I'm going to love that. In fact, it's because he loves us that we suddenly are given worth, and we matter. God's love is an unalterable love that's willing to suffer no matter what for the benefit of of somebody else. You know, Christ suffered on the cross for us. I think we get that. I think I, got, I think I give God a lot of other reasons to suffer in my human life. But He just keeps on loving me. I love that statement. There's nothing you can do today that will make, you, that'll make God love you any less than He already does. It's an unalterable love. And there's nothing that you're going to do that's going to make Him love you more than He already does. You got it all right now. God has poured it out into you through Christ. Now, he has a lot to say in this book about um, gifts. But I think the main thing of what he's saying in the context of chapters 12 and 14 with 13 in the middle is all the gifts or all the great wonderful things that you think make a church or an individual super spiritual are nothing without the fruit. Love is not a gift, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit that's to be developed in us. And it might be real easy for us to cop out and say, well, gee, I can't love the way God loves because I'm not God. Well, if you're a Christian, you are Christ in you. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, and His job is to produce that fruit, that chesed agape, that we do not possess. The reason God pours so much of it into us is so that we have more than we can contain 
and we share it with others. So that's where the real challenge is, is we have to ask ourselves, God, if I've received your love through Jesus Christ, how do I now give it to others? How do I now go do that? And we've already heard so many examples, but it kind of comes down to what Ted said, just do something. Just do something. And let God take it from there. Agape said is the action of grace. This world needs to see grace. Not just hear about it. And we don't need to just sing about it. We need to show this world what this love looks like. Let's pray. Lord, in a moment we're, we're going to come to your table where there is broken bread and poured out wine representing the body and the blood of Christ. Really representing the sacrifice of love that he gave to us. And Lord, let us not approach that table to receive unless we're willing to give. So Lord, as we're now here before you and in prayer after looking at 1 Corinthians 13 and just kind of scanning the surface of it. The questions we probably should ask ourselves right now is, who am I going to love? Who out there needs to know this love of God? And, 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 and how can I take the fruit that you want to produce in me and give it to them? And maybe we should ask, well, what am I going to do to show it? Lord, teach us practical ways. Show us practical ways, easy ways that we can just do something. Spring into action so that love is seen. And then, Lord, maybe we have to ask ourselves this question. When are we going to go do it? Father, I am sorry that I am often more Corinthian than Christ-like. And all I'm asking right now is, Lord, that you would not just give me your love, but that you would whip up and produce your love in me through the Holy Spirit, because I can't do it. But if I'm dependent on you and if I'm trusting you, I I think you'll give it to me. (laughs) And if I'm willing to sacrifice, I, I know it'll be there. Lord, let us all together be vessels of this incredibly huge kind. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.